Welcome to Leadership Reimagined. I'm Dr. Jane Lovish, your host. During each episode of Leadership Reimagined, we take a look at leadership from the vantage point of what it's going to take for leaders to lead their organizations forward into a new future. And in this episode, we're creating that new future. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Corey Latham. She is a technology entrepreneur who has invented robots for kids with disabilities, virtual reality technology for the space station, and wearable sensors for training surgeons and soldiers. She is also the author of Inventing the Future, Stories from a Techno-Optimist. So welcome, Corey. It's so great to have you here. Finally, after all this time, we got it, we made it happen. Yes, yes. I'm thrilled to be here, Jane. Thanks for having me. Oh, you are so welcome. You know, I when I was reading your your bio and looking at what your company did that you've since you've been bought out, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and some of the things that you have created and what what inspired you? Because you know, when I when I think about women in tech. I, I think of it from the software, you know, as because I was a software developer and you're coming at it from a very different wit for technology, a very different direction. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've always been interested in kind of the cutting edge physical technologies, things that you could touch like sensors and robots and even telecommunications technologies, which maybe you couldn't necessarily touch, but sort of enabled a capability that was kind of out of this world. So I've always been very sort of tangible in that way. Um, wanted to be an astronaut when I was young and fascinated with Star Trek and all the technology on Star Trek. So, so I think that's a theme that has persisted throughout and certainly through the company where we like to to make things. Now, there's almost always software involved because that's a tool, artificial intelligence, machine learning, all of that's a tool that we used throughout. We like to make things that you could touch. Right. I never made something you could touch, you know, conceptualize it. You could see it. You could see results of it. And so that's really an exciting way of looking at technology is those things that you can touch and building robots and the wearable devices. What was it about about that? Because those things real actually support people in their lives, right? Yeah. And so I've the other sort of theme, the corollary to that is that I've also been very interested at the intersections of the intersection of human and technology technology to enable humans to do things better. So, you know, back to the Star Trek example, I mean, the, the replicator or the, or the tricorder or how could a piece of technology or how could technology help us do things better? So I always was interested in technology with a human in the loop. Mm. And when I had my first job out of grad school. Uh, I did my, as you know, I did my graduate work at MIT in aerospace engineering and neuroscience because at the time the field of biomedical engineering was just emerging and there wasn't, you couldn't actually get a degree in biomedical engineering. 
because of my graduate degrees, I was offered a position as a professor of biomedical engineering. And so at the time, not, none of us professors in biomedical engineering actually had a degree in it. And so that was great because as a interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary person, it was like a perfect fit for me where it wasn't the odd person out with a weird degree, which I always felt like was going to happen. So we were all a bunch of misfits in biomedical engineering with varying different backgrounds. And we were working very closely with the National Rehabilitation Hospital in Washington, D.C. At the time, the military and the Department of Education had big grants, big center grants for how emerging technologies like robotics and sensors and telecommunication technologies could be used for dual-use applications. So medical for military and civilian. Um, that was a big buzzword at the time, dual-use technology. And so we partnered with, I was a professor at Catholic University, we partnered with the National Rehab Hospital, and we ended up getting quite a bit of uh, center grant money to fund the development of these technologies for several different populations. One was a big population at the time was stroke, and still is elderly. But at the time, the three big populations were sort of elderly, primarily stroke rehabilitation. The second was job accommodation. So sort of workforce, it was usually like a one-on-one, -on -one, like an individual with a specific disability trying to do a specific job. So it was very individualized. And then the other big population was children. And I was fascinated by, the uh, as an engineer, I was fascinated at the potential to design for children. Because in my mind, all children have the same design specifications. All children need to reach certain developmental goals. They all strive to learn receptive and expressive language skills, mm -hmm. for example. Now, they might do it with different abilities and different abilities that emerge in different ways at different times. They all are trying to learn the same developmental goals. So in my mind as an engineer, I interpreted that as like, well, this is a no-brainer. If I develop, develop universal design, a technology for learning receptive or expressive language skills for a child, if I design it properly, all children will be able to learn. And so that's how we came up with our first invention. Chapter one in my book, as you, <laughs> we haven't talked about my book yet, but um, I, I, this I, was coming. This was yeah, I, as, yeah, yeah, inventing the future stories from a techno optimist, as you know, just came out in October. And the first chapter is the story of Cosmobot, which is that first invention, which was an educational robot to engage with young kids or older kids, depending on their developmental disability, to actually learn things like expressive and receptive language skills. So for example, the robot could play a Simon Says game with a child and it, they could make it a very, they could, you could adapt the robot to engage the child physically or verbally, which really relieved the therapist of a lot of their effort, which is spent a lot of the time just trying to get the child's attention. Mm -hmm. I mean, therapists are amazing. And they spend a lot of their time coming up with creative ways to engage a child and to motivate them. Well, the robot immediately engaged and motivated the child. And so the therapist could actually focus on the educational and clinical goals. 
So that was the origin and the purpose of our first invention, Cosmobot. Interesting. That and where did that go then? Because, you know, once you do one thing, it opens up other doors, <laughs> right? So that launched a crazy journey, um, a 20-year journey of invention, which I will continue to tell you the story of where that led. It's, it is why I wrote the book, because the journey became fascinating. That led me to, to leave academia, to start the company, to commercialize Cosmobot. Uh, some of the key parts of the story, we started to raise money to commercialize Cosmobot. We were very naive. I mean, educational robots are such a disruptive technology. They still don't exist, right? I mean, you now have educational robots, usually in a classroom of able-bodied kids doing a project with with robotic technology, which is great. I'm thrilled that there's hands-on. I mean, I, I coached my daughter's robotics teams for years and years and years. So that's all great. What we conceived of, Cosmobot, a robot in the clinic, in the classroom with the children, still doesn't exist. So we were very naive. We were trying to raise like $1.5 million, which would have built maybe, you know, two robots at the time. Because again, we still didn't even have... So not only was it disruptive in the sense it disrupts the way people do business, and they still don't do business with robots, business in the sense of education, the technology at the time... Sensors hadn't gone through this revolution. We didn't have iPhones. We didn't have consumer level computer power and sensors. Right. So it was very expensive technology, very expensive and very one off. I mean, the brain of Cosmobot was a compact iPack, if you remember, you know, the old handheld. Yes. So, so Cosmobot had a beautiful life as a research tool. We published, you know, several papers with our collaborators at the Mayo Clinic. At, at various other facilities, uh, local in Maryland, where we did some research with kids with autism, you know, with the National Rehab Hospital. So Cosmobot had a very rich and full life as a research tool. One of the things that the reason why, well, the end of Cosmobot really came as, as, a, as a potential product, it would have happened at some point or another, I'm convinced. We actually went to raise money. We we launched our private placement memorandum for 1.5 million the night before 9-11. Oh. So as you may recall, the VC community pretty much disappeared and has only recently recovered. I mean, I read some crazy statistic that it's only in the past few years that the VC levels have risen to pre... Yeah, I mean, it was something... It's something crazy. I mean, it really, really... The VC community disappeared after, you know, the bubble and 9-11 for a long time. So, so, so that, so all of those things pretty much killed it as a product and it did have a lifetime as a, as a research tool. So we pivoted and we actually turned Cosmobot the character in, into educational software starring Cosmobot the virtual character. And we also had a great interface that we had developed for kids with disabilities and with all abilities to interact with the robot. So we used that same interface to interact with the computer software. So we had a very innovative computer interface called Mission Control, which you could do all sorts of fun things with Cosmobot and Cosmobot's fr and Cosmos friends um, in this world that we called Cosmos Learning System. So we brought that product to market. We were one of the first, we got it, we received an SBIR, Small Business Innovation Grant, Small Business Innovative Research Grant, <laughs> 
from uh, the National Science Foundation, and that's what saved the company after 9-11. And, uh, and then we went on to receive one of NSF's. We were part of their, we were, I think, one of the very first companies to get their, what they called their supersized SBIRs, where we raised a million in matching, uh, a million dollars in investment, and they matched it. And we were able to bring Cosmos Learning System to market. So that was about, I don't know, 2005 or so. Um, so and so that was... I'm just yeah. curious, a little bit off topic. What yeah. was the, the reception of it in education in schools? So um, it was excellent uh, in the sense it was... We had um, a lot of interest, particularly... Um, in uh, in early childhood uh, traditional classrooms, so you know m you know either integrated classrooms or able-bodied kids, um, and then we also had real a lot of interest in um, facilities with uh, schools where kids had a lot of behavioral um, and developmental uh, disabilities. So. Um, we worked very closely with the Linwood School in Maryland, which I believe serves mostly kids um, on, on the autism spectrum. And because we had such a robust interface, the the therapist didn't have to worry about these kids, you know, hurting a keyboard and hurting a mouse and, mm. you know, fine motor control. So these kids could be pretty physical with our interface but yet work on things like early numeracy and um, and early literacy. You know, and they could work on and, and engage with the software. Yeah. 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 And we had manipulatives so they could, you know, do it on, you know, little uh, magnetic boards. So so there was a huge amount of interest in it. Um, what's interesting about that is I think that that could have had a, a good lifetime. I mean, it, the thing is, technology products don't have that long a lifetime anyway. Right. Right. However, the big disruption there was the iPad. So the iPad came out and all of these schools got rid of their desktop computers mm -hmm. and went to iPads. And so having, you know, we could have rejiggered the software pretty easily to be like a touchscreen type thing, but it kind of defeated the whole purpose because we had this physicality this physical interface. Well, that's what, that's, as soon as you said that, that's what I thought is, I, I bet that's kind of that missing link. And the reason I asked is, I have a daughter that's a teacher and mm -hmm. she has taught in public schools and private schools, um, in Title I schools. She had a class, a third grade classroom where, where she had, one student that was basically nonverbal and one student that was reading at a sixth grade level in one classroom. Yeah. yeah, I believe it. And I could see something like this being such a support in an environment, but it has to be not just mentally engaging, which is an iPad, but yeah. the physicality engaging. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and teachers, I mean, Teachers at all levels are pretty amazing, but I mean, especially um, in those younger years when you can have such, such a breadth of uh, and depth of different abilities uh, in, in within one classroom that is mm -hmm. pretty mind boggling. Um, so we, you know, that was something, 
you know, and then the, you know, the iPad supported that in different ways, you know, the flexibility of different types of software, but that was, that was a big disruption and that disrupted desktop. And so, um, you know, the other, the other piece of that, which I, I, I talk about in the book, um, we also had, um, we also, uh, had some, um, obstacles that we weren't expecting. So our software was called Cosmos Learning System. Well, Cosmos, Cosmopolitan Magazine, so Hearst Communications, you know, biggest media conglomerate came after us and said that we couldn't use Cosmo. Oh, my goodness. So a tiny little company doing, doing, uh, you know, products for kids with disabilities, you know, and that and they came after us. So basically, we got to cease and desist from them. Oh, oh, no. Well, I want to, I also want to ask you, because this, this podcast is about leadership. Mm -hmm. So you started in academia teaching. Yep. Which is, is a leadership of its, of its own type. Yeah, of course. And then start your own company and expand it. Yep. I imagine there was a whole learning curve about being and expanding your leadership in that experience also. Yes, yes. And I found that, um, so it was interesting. There was a little bit of a push and a little bit of a pull uh, and, you know, reflecting on the leadership styles. The things that I loved about academia, um, I kind of brought with me. So those things were working with really smart students, um, having colleagues and collaborators, um, finding interesting projects, and, and in some way, in some ways being student led. And, and, and I mean, again, with a company, I wouldn't have called it student led, but but team led, you know, if, if there were interesting things that um, you could kind of build on di- on different things, you could design uh, new technologies. You know, as a company, we got a lot of patents. Part of that was that I, I ran it a little bit like an academic research lab. Um, where we could, you know, we could propose cool things to do and the government would fund it through SBIRs. That's what mm. SBIRs are. You go to the government and you say, I have this cool idea and will you give me money to do it? And that's kind of how academia works. Professors say, I want to do, I want to answer this cool research question. And you go to the government and you ask for funding. So, so a lot of what I loved about academia, I brought with me the, the intellectual curiosity, mm-hmm. the mentoring, the teamwork, um, you know, the, what I, what I didn't like about academia, um, was the lack of accountability, um, in the sense of, uh, you weren't, you didn't have kind of a, you didn't really have good metrics for success, uh, or, or they were they were research papers, and I wanted sure. to do more than research papers. I wanted to do products. So I should say it wasn't it wasn't that there weren't metrics for success. They weren't the metrics that I was interested in. Right. You know, I wanted to do product, um, and you know, prototyping and product. I was more interested in than than ne- than potentially the research. So, so from a leadership perspective, you know, I was lucky that I could bring some of those leadership skills from academia. Um, and, I also. And- Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt, but I also want to really encourage our listeners to to hear that because that curiosity and that willingness to try things. Imagine working for a company with, that allows that. Yeah. Encourages it. Yes. 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 So I think that was something that um, we were a very, very unique company. 
uh, in that sense. Um, and and also because academia, in some ways, academia is siloed, but in other ways, um, I learned some lessons about building a support infrastructure around me. Again, I think as a professor, you're used to having um, the bureaucracy of an institution around you to support you. Well, I, I took the good parts of that. I knew that I needed a chief you know, financial officer, that I did not want to, you know, that was not where I wanted to spend my time. I knew I needed a chief operating officer. I didn't want, that's not where I wanted to spend my time. Um, you know, I knew I needed, you know, an office manager. So I, I invested right up front in a lot of infrastructure to support mm -hmm. the creativity that then I knew that I felt confident that I could get interest in and funding for, um, and then building the team because, you know, our, our company was located at University of Maryland. I had an adjunct appointment in aerospace engineering, and I was over at University of Maryland, and I saw this building being built called a business incubator. And this was back in 1999 when business incubators weren't really a thing. <laughs> so... Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I, uh, I was one of the first companies to enter the University of Maryland Business Incubator. And so we could pull from University of Maryland students. You know, the, the D.C. area is so rich with students. And then, of course, we had interns coming from universities all over the U.S. Um, every year we had interns from MIT and Swarthmore, which were my alma maters. So, you know, I loved I loved that um that in innovation and creativity and nurturing that. Um, and as a result, we had, you know, a 20 year run of different inventions and products. Um, and we knew what we did well. I mean, what, what we did well as a company was from concept to what I'll call manufacturable prototypes. So not just a prototype that sort of looks like, feels like, but is actually a prototype that, you could make, manufacture, and sell. Now, whether there was a market for it, that's not what we were good at, you know, and in some ways, um, and and we were somewhat successful at finding partners to uh, to manufacture and sell some of our products. And some of them, you know, it was just too early. I mean, we worked with, one example I give um, is, uh, so DARPA, uh, your listeners might be familiar with DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, mm -hmm. um, uh, when ARPANET was, came out of, which became the internet, came out of DARPA. Um, so DARPA funds very high risk, um, low chance of success technology. We did a lot of projects with DARPA. And one of them, which was about 10 years before Google did it, was called the Viz Unit and was essentially Google Glass for the military. But we did it for soldiers who were trying to uh, control um, robots in the field. And so we had these glasses that they could see through and, and operate normally, or they could have the overlay of what the robots were seeing, um, either uh, from a distance um, with the robots being visible or not visible. Um, and so basically it was, it was Google Glass. And, you know, of course there was no market for it then. And then 10 years later when Google do, did it, there still wasn't a market for it. And you'd think, you know, they're the experts. They should know if there's a market. Um, but that's, that's the beauty of emerging technology. I mean, even with all the resources of Google, they still quote unquote had a failure at the market. But, um, but to me, you know, failure is not a failure. It's, it's, you know, it's what's next. It's, it's right. you learn from it. It's an iteration. There's no such thing as failure. It's just an iteration.
Exactly. And it may just not be the time. There may right. be other things that have to come into. And that's, you know, the challenge of innovation is if you wait until you need something, it's too late to innovate. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's actually the title of that chapter is called Tech and Timing. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, <laughs> Corey, if you can believe it, our time is just about up. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It was so fast. <laughs> I know it. I know. I just I love the, the stories. I love what you were sharing. I, I, I love that you, you know, we were we tied it into leadership a little bit, too. Because I could just see your leadership coming out of that, and I like I wanted to make sure that we we got that. But what would what's one last thing that you would like to share? One last story or or experience? Wow, that's uh, I think um, so. One of the a couple of the themes from my book, um, I I I see invention as a creative process, just as much a creative process as creating a piece of music or, um, or, or, or a play um, or a piece of art. So that's one of the themes that I talk about throughout my book. And in fact, Yo-Yo Ma wrote my forward because Ooh. he also <laughs> thinks of um, the creative and the creative process that, uh, in a similar way that, that I do. We're very simpatico along our thinking there. And, you know, I talk about the in, invention when you have a when you have a concept or an idea you know you might do a sketch and and think about creating a piece of art you might do a sketch and then you know you might do a few of those sketches and then you might actually put some you know some oil down on canvas and and you know it might it may or may not turn into something that you show to someone um and it may or may not ever see the light of day but it that is part of just the creativity your creative process and outlet um, and then maybe it goes further. Maybe, maybe you actually create, invent a prototype that's kind of a looks like, feels like, you know, that you want to show people and you want to actually get feedback on. Um, and that may be where it ends and that's okay. And then maybe you take it all the way to market. Maybe it's a commercial success and that's great too. But all of those steps in, from an inventing perspective are equal. Um, mm -hmm. they're all part of the creative process and they build on each other and you never know who you're going to inspire. Um, and you never know what it inspires in you. Right. And you never know what something that you begin today sometime later may come a totally different, but it's the germ of it started, you know, the gem of it was in what you created. Exactly. And I hope, especially through the stories in my book, you'll see that that comes back. I mean, something that we invent in 2016, I talked about in, you know, 1999 when I started the company. Like all of those themes and ideas and principles sort of come back around so that when the market's ready, you actually, the idea that, you know, you, it's, you've already done the inventing. You've already done the hard part in yeah. some ways, yeah. at least the creative part of it. Yeah. So tell us the name of your book again and where people can get it, because I'm sure they're going to want to get it now and read it. <laughs> <laughs> so the book is uh, Inventing the Future, Stories from a Techno-Optimist by me, Corinna Lathan. And it's on Amazon. It's on, I mean, it's on everything. So, you know, if that's, if, if there's something else where you like to get your books, it's an audio ebook. Um, and if you just uh, look for Inventing the Future by Corinna Lathan, you will find it. Oh. 
Great. Well, this has been a fabulous conversation and I'm so glad you were here today. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us this week on Leadership Reimagined. I encourage you to take something that you heard today and apply it in your business. The key to progress is action and sharing. I'd love to hear what you accomplish. Email me at jlovis at lovisconsulting.com and let me know. Speaking of applying it in your business, if you're struggling or looking to expand your leadership skills, let's talk. You can go to lovisconsulting.com. That's L-O-V as in Victor, A-S, consulting.com, and schedule a quick call with me. We need powerful, strong, compassionate leaders to solve the challenges we are facing today. Please subscribe on your favorite platform and share with your friends and family. Thank you for supporting us as we cause and expand 1 million women leaders in tech by 2030. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Bye.